Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. The main event in today's show occurred in the year 1752, but what else happened that year? Well, the monarch of the day was George II, the Prime Minister was Henry Pellman, and on January the 1st, the British Empire, except Scotland, which had already done this in 1600, adopts today as the first day of the year as part of the changeover to the Gregorian calendar, which is completed in September. Today, the 1st of January, is the first day of the new year under the terms of last year's Calendar Act of the British Parliament. On February 10th, Pennsylvania Hospital, the first hospital in the United States and the first to offer medical treatment to the mentally ill, admits its first patients at a temporary location in Philadelphia. On the 1st of June, the Murder Act of 1751 comes into effect, providing that the bodies of hanged murderers should suffer public dissection or, for men, hanging in the gibbet. Remember that one. On November 3rd, a hurricane destroys a Spanish settlement on Florida's Santa Rosa Island, leaving only two buildings standing. The remaining residents decide to move from the Barrier Island on the Gulf of Mexico and to start a settlement on the nearby mainland and construct the Presidio San Miguel de Pensacola, which later forms the nucleus of the city of Pensacola, Florida. And on the 5th of December, the first presentation of a Shakespearean play in America is performed when a company of players stages The Merchant of Venice, in Williamsburg, Virginia. But our story happens in Newcastle, in one of its most famous locations, the Big Market, a place that's certainly seen some action down the years, and our story feeds the legend of this place as a tale of a soldier in the wrong place involved in a fatal brawl. Word of the Week. And for this week's Word of the Week, I give you... Gardilu, 
which was used in medieval Edinburgh as a warning cry when it was customary to throw slops from the windows into the streets. As I said earlier, one of Newcastle's most famous locations is the Big Market, which has been the venue of many escapades, good and bad. But its story long predates today's bars, restaurants and fast food joints. The market was named after a type of barley and was one of several along the Great North Road, the main link between London and Scotland. This important old route crossed the Tyne protected by the castle and continued up what is today's Percy Street. The big market has been held in Newcastle since the Middle Ages, while others nearby included the Cloth Market, Groat Market and the White Cross Market. In 1752, Ewan MacDonald was a 19-year-old Scottish soldier posted in smoky, cramped big market, billeted at the Black Bull Inn. On his off-duty time, MacDonald was in Pinkies, since it was near the inn he checked into. As with any young, drunk individual, he got disorderly, and Pinkies had already established its infamous reputation of being one of the rowdiest alehouses in the area. One evening, he got into an argument with some locals who kept mocking his Scottish accent. The soldier, having had enough, lashed out, and before he knew it, a full-on bar ball was in progress that spilled to the street and continued in the alleyway. The soldier drew a knife in what he would later claim was self-defence. Lunging out, he stabbed a local cooper called Robert Parker, piercing the jugular vein in the victim's neck. The drunken violence then escalated out of control. MacDonald was surrounded by a crowd of angry men, threatening him with revenge. After stabbing Robert Parker in the throat, the angry mob cornered MacDonald into two brick walls. He assaulted one of his attackers by breaking his arm and verbally abused the others. Meanwhile, Robert Parker was forgotten about in the chaos and bled to death on the ground. In the morning, the Newcastle coroner was called in to inspect the victim's corpse. After an examination, the coroner ruled that it was a case of willful murder. Now, as a serving soldier, MacDonald should have been arrested by the military authorities, but the Murder Act of 1752 had recently come into force in Newcastle. Local magistrates decreed that the military suspect for being so violent must be imprisoned in the borough jail. A homicide charge would be held over to be tried at the next assizes, leaving six weeks to determine the medical evidence and collate its findings with witness statements. If found guilty, a public dissection at Newcastle Surgeons Hall would be ordered by the presiding judge. If so, it would be one of the first official cases 
of post-mortem punishment to take place in the northern counties of Georgian England. MacDonald was duly found guilty on the 28th of September, 1754. And the judge did pass the death sentence under the Murder Act, saying, You will be hung from the neck until dead, and thence to be dissected and anatomised. on the street. Today, my friends, we venture forth to John Carr's terrace in BS8. John Carr died in 1586 and was a wealthy safe maker and founder of Queen Elizabeth's Hospital. In his will, he left some of his properties for the purpose of providing shelter for Bristol's orphans and poor children. Queen Elizabeth Hospital's school first opened at Gaunt's in Unity Street, then moved to St Bartholomew's Hospital in Christmas Street, finally being established in 1847 in its present location on the slopes of Brandon Hill. It is believed John Carr is buried in the Lord Mayor's Chapel, but the tomb there is marked only with the initials J.C. On the 22nd of September, the process for MacDonald's execution began. On the gallows, after kicking the executioner and trying to do a runner, MacDonald was finally hanged and his lifeless body cut down and taken to the surgeon's hall, where it would be dissected in the name of medical science. An extensive report of the execution and its post-mortem rituals appeared in the Newcastle General Magazine. Ewan MacDonald was executed on the Talmoor Newcastle pursuant to his sentence at the Assizes. This most unfortunate young man, who was only 19 years of age, appeared all the time of his confinement deeply affected with a true sense of guilt. But at the gallows, his behaviour in endeavouring to throw the executioner from off the ladder was unbecoming to one just on the brink of eternity. His body was taken to the surgeon's hall and there dissected. The following day, popular broadsheets also featured an execution day special. They reported that the dissection of MacDonald was a troublesome affair for the Newcastle officials. It was said that after the body was taken to the surgeon's hall and placed ready for dissection, that the surgeons were called to attend a case at the infirmary, who, on their return, found MacDonald so far recovered as to be sitting up, he immediately begged for mercy but a young surgeon, not wishing to be disappointed of the dissection, seized a wooden mall with which he deprived him of life. It was further reported, as the just vengeance of God, that this young man was soon after killed in the stable by his own horse. They used to show the mallet at the surgeon's hall as the identical one used by the surgeon. The vengeance of God statement regarding the young surgeon being killed by his horse can easily be disproved, as it was seven years later that the son of the surgeon, Lambert, was involved in an accident as detailed in the Newcastle Courant at the time. On Friday the last instant, 
as Mr Cuthbert Lambert, youngest son of an eminent physician of that name in this town, was riding along Sanfordstone Lane. His mare took fright and, running to the bridge, leapt on the battlement three and a half foot high from thence and made a spring to one side of the burn below, which measures 45 feet and is 36 feet perpendicular. What is most astonishing, and indeed remarkably providential, the young gentleman kept close to his seat from the top to the bottom and escaped with his life. He is now greatly recovered from the hurt received by so violent a shock, and in a very promising way to do well. The mayor died soon after. If you read later reports, they suggest that Lambert's survival here was even more amazing, with some claiming that he survived by hanging from the branches of an old ash tree. This story became the stuff of legend, and there was even a pub named after it just near the site, which has since shut down. But now back to MacDonald. And at the time of his resurrection, newspaper editors questioned the events and the use of execution as a punishment. There were lots of speculation in the press about the force of the prisoner's willpower. Maybe, they said, he had a dangerous inner strength, different to ordinary people, that could defy the executioner. Some commentators thought that it was possible that the soldier had not been guilty of homicide but manslaughter, and God had intervened to save his life. If so, it seemed immoral for divine justice to be denied by surgeons keen to obtain a criminal corpse to dissect. Regional broadsheets carried detailed accounts from witnesses at the crime scene. These claimed that not only was MacDonald provoked into a bar fight, but that exonerating evidence had been dismissed in court. The local constabulary, meanwhile, maintained that resentment against the murder act was running so high that the resurrection story was all lies to sell more papers. This legend still appears alive in Newcastle and is still one of the most titillating stories in the many ghost or murder walks and tours that take place there. And by the way, should you be in Newcastle and you want to have a look, Pinkney's Tavern, where the bar brawl took place, still exists, but it's called the Beehive Pub now. There are many other execution survivors, and I could do loads of shows on them. For example, in 1650, when Anne Green was 22, she was a servant in a household of Sir Thomas Reed. She became pregnant by his grandson, though she claimed she did not know she was with child. At 18 weeks while churning malt, Anne felt sick. In a toilet, she miscarried, and in her terror, hid the baby in some ashes and dirt. At that time, there was a statute that any single woman who concealed a pregnancy or stillbirth could be accused of infanticide. Midwives at the time said that the fetus was too young to have ever lived, yet Green was hanged in the courtyard of Oxford Castle. Her last words were to condemn the lewdness of the family wherein she lately lived. Her last request was that her friends pull at her body to speed up her demise, which they did. The body was cut down and delivered to a medical school for dissection. However, when the coffin was opened, the surgeons detected a faint rise and fall of Anne's chest. 
they forgot their original intention and began to try and revive her through bleeding, having cordial forced down her throat and hot plasters, which she also survived. The public saw this as a decision of a just God, and Green was pardoned. Taking her coffin as a souvenir, she settled in another town, married and had children. Her father thought to charge admission to meet her, and the money settled all her medical and legal debts. Another woman who survived was Maggie Dixon, who got pregnant while her husband was away at sea, which was a very unfortunate situation for a woman in 1724. She tried to conceal the pregnancy, illegal at the time, but no one in her boarding house was buying it. The premature baby was, or... No one is really sure whether the premature baby was still born, but because she concealed it, it didn't really matter. She was executed by hanging. Her family were able to clean the body and keep it from the dissection table. As they drove Maggie in her coffin towards the cemetery, they stopped when they heard someone tapping on the inside of the coffin. Maggie's survival was taken as an act of God. She became a celebrity, nicknamed Half Hang It Maggie, and she lived for another 40 years, and today a tavern stands in her honour near the site of her hanging. And lastly, for this particular episode, we have a murderer recorded as the man Franks in an 1872 copy of an Australian paper. He survived his execution thanks to his executioner's great incompetence. He also had the unfortunate distinction of being the first person to be executed in the briefly established kingdom of Fiji. Now within two years, debt would drive Fiji to become a colony of Britain. The executioners didn't know what they were doing and the execution took place hours after it was scheduled because the sheriff didn't find the established time convenient. And so the rope they'd set out got wet in the rain and had to be held over a fire to dry. Then... Before slipping the noose over the wretched man's head, the hangman had to sit down and place one of his feet in and pull with all his might to make the knot run. Then, after placing it over Frank's head, he had the utmost difficulty in making it fit anything like tight, but not nearly so tight as it should have been. Frank's dropped, but after three minutes of silence, started moving and talking, asking to be put out of his misery. Since his hands were improperly tied, he managed to reach up and pull the rope from his throat, forgiving those around him for the black job they'd made of his execution. Finally, an official cut Franks down. He landed with a thud, as no one had thought to ease him to the ground. After watching such a spectacle, no one wanted to go through it again, and Franks was spared death. Ted Bundy abducted and murdered my dad's high school friend, Debbie Kent, in 1974. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, 
but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode of Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true unsolved cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized, bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. today, we'll be talking to a soldier who survived mustard gas in battle and then pepper spray by the police. He's now a seasoned veteran. Back in the day facts. start with the 23rd of July 1872 when African-American inventor Elijah McCoy is granted a patent for lubricators for steam engines. The Great Fire of 1660 in Constantinople occurred on the 24th of July. Two-thirds of the city was destroyed including 280,000 wooden houses with a death toll of around 40,000. Also, on the 24th of July in 1851, the long-hated window tax is abolished in the United Kingdom. On the 25th of July, 1797, Horatio Nelson loses more than 300 men and his right arm during the failed conquest attempt of Tenerife. In 2009, researchers at the National Archives in Kew had finished gathering personal accounts written by surgeons at sea, including the medical log from the Battle of Trafalgar. The journals also reveal some of the first scientific investigations into diseases like scurvy, the scourge of the sailor at the time. Whilst going through these vital documents, they found that Nelson was hit in the right arm by a musket ball shortly after stepping ashore. Bleeding heavily, he was taken back to HMS Thesis, where the injured limb was amputated. On the 25th of July, the ship's surgeon, James Farquhar, wrote in his journal, Compound fracture of the right arm by a musket ball passing through a little above the elbow. An artery divided. The arm was immediately amputated. It's claimed that within 30 minutes, Nelson was once again issuing orders to his men. On the 1st of August, Farquhar noted, Admiral Nelson, amputated arm. Continued getting well very fast. Stump looked well. No bad symptoms whatever occurred. The sore reduced to the size of a shilling in perfect good health. One of the ligatures not come away. The 25th of July 1914 saw the last day of club cricket for English legend W.G. Grace. At the age of 66, this Bristolian makes an unbeaten 69 runs for Eltham against Grove Park. 
Also on the 25th of July, 1966, the Supremes released a single, You Can't Hurry Love. On the 26th of July, 1865, the capital of New Zealand moves from Auckland to Wellington. The 27th of July, 1377, saw the first example of quarantine in Ragusa, which is now Dubrovnik. The City Council passes law saying newcomers from plague areas must isolate for 30 days, which later becomes 40 days in Quaranta in Italian. And lastly, on the 28th of July, 1858, the first use of fingerprints as a means of identification is made by Sir William James Herschel of the Indian Civil Service. Herschel recognised that fingerprints were unique and permanent. And to prove this, he documented his own fingerprints over his lifetime to prove permanence. He was also credited with being the first person to use fingerprints in a practical manner. As early as 1858, whilst he was working as a British officer for the Indian Civil Service in Jangipur in the Bengal region of India, he started putting fingerprints on contracts. He worked from his late teens all the way through until two years before his death. And now it's time for me to say farewell and I hope you've enjoyed the show. The real stars today were David Handy, who is actually from Newcastle, Molly Jeffries, Sam Roberts and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol and Steve Shepherd from our very own Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.